The BMJ and the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford have long been collaborating to document the problems with the creation and use of evidence-based medicine. And together, we host evidence gatherers, synthesizers and users at the conference Evidence Live. We know what the problems are, but what would positive change when it comes to the creation and use of medical evidence look like? To find out, we're doing a series of discussions at various places around the world where we're talking to people who have a particular insight into one area of the evidence ecosystem. Ultimately, we're collating this into what we're calling the Evidence Manifesto. In this discussion, we went to the FAR Institute, which is a collaboration of 21 academic institutions and health partners here in the UK. Their mission is to deliver high-quality, cutting-edge research using big data. Hi, welcome. Uh, my name's Carl Hennigan. I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine and we're at the FAR Institute today in London and we've been talking about the manifesto and we've got some researchers and clinicians from the FAR Institute who are here to talk about some of the issues that they've heard in the latest talk. Hello, uh, my name's Ami Banerjee. I'm a cardiologist and I am a senior lecturer in data science at the FAR Institute here in London. Um, I work with uh, big data uh, in, in research about cardiovascular disease in particular. Hi, I'm Rob Aldridge. I'm an academic clinical lecturer here at the FAR Institute. I'm a public health doctor by training um, and I'm using big data in public health. Hello, I'm Laura Shellcross. I'm a clinical lecturer in public health based here at the FAR and I'm using electronic health records in primary and secondary care to look at antibiotic prescribing. Hello, my name is Maxine McIntosh. I'm a PhD student at the FAR and I'm using medical records to see um, if we can identify dementia early. And I also have an interest in diversity inclusion in health informatics. Hello, I'm Victoria Allen. I'm a PhD student here at the FAR. I'm uh, using electronic health records to try and further our understanding about the common heart rhythm disorder, atrial fibrillation. I'm Helen McDonald, GP and clinical editor at the BMJ. Ami Banerjee started off by explaining what big data actually means to them. Big, big data is in, in, in some ways a term that I don't like because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a term that has, is used um, because it's captured the public's imagination. It's been used in, in the computing space and the finance space for, for several decades. Um, but there's no question that right now, you know, there's, there's, you know, what people call the five V's, or actually some people talk about seven V's, things like volume, velocity, veracity, all those things. Um, and I, th I think that um, there's not necessarily particular methods, but it's just the it's it's the scale that you're able to do things. So, you know, if you're talking about an EHR trial, the how quickly you could recruit and and perform the trial of 10,000 participants versus the current model. Um, if you're wanting, you know, we know that there aren't trials of the same magnitude in diagnostics, in prognostics as there are in, in drugs. Those kind of things that could, that could be done because we have just in one hospital or one hospital system enough people to do that observational study or to do uh, that trial. So it's not necessarily a particular study design, I would say. When it comes to big data, you can only actually analyse what you've managed to collect. 
Ami Banerjee and Rob Aldridge highlight the problems that they've encountered with this. So when, um, when electronic health records were introduced into general practice uh, some decades ago now, there was a, a lot of um, kickback because people were concerned that it would add to their consultation time, it would add to their workload, they'd have to learn new skills and now who would, who would say that in general practice? We still have some of those issues on the hospital side with implementation of electronic health records. Similarly, there's this perception that research incorporated into clinical practice is going to take up time that I could be spending with my patient when actually it's, it's actually the duty of us in healthcare and the health system to be making sure that the research is done and the data is used in order to improve that one patient's care and, and the, the um, performance of the whole system. I, I entirely take your point about the 10-minute consultation window, but I, but I would say, are you happy as a GP giving your patient a, a drug that you don't know works well or not? We need to do the culture change thing uh, so that it becomes acceptable for that individual to be randomised with very efficient um, mechanisms for consent and, in, and information and I think the regulatory process is not there and I think the mechanisms for doing that are not there. To me you're preaching to the converted but most of my clinicians out there are just saying we're swamped. The other thing that's really interesting you said uh, well GPs are ahead of the game in computer records aren't they but one of the issues I guess we've come up against is they're all independent practitioners aren't they so they're not like a unified NHS and that presents issues when you're trying to get the data and the governance and contracts and have you come across them sorts of problems when you've been trying to do these collecting data and healthcare data and yeah I mean I so I'm public health doctor by training and really we're trying to understand how you can use GP records to estimate burden of disease in in the population and what we lack is a, a universal system of, of GP records, which we don't have at the moment. And I think um, that is a massive barrier. If we want, as a, as a public health doctor, we want to be able to say, right, this is the or lo in your local authority, this is the little area where you've got massively high uh, high blood pressure rates, or you've got um, really high BMI rates, and 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 those data are in the GP records, but they're, because they're split across different systems at the moment, we can't have that. Um, I think it's going to get better. There's talk about those systems being uh, unified and, and combined, but um, I think we're still a way away from that, and it would be good to see improvements in that area. There it was mentioned that patients might be unaware of who's actually able to access and use their data. Rob Aldridge and Maxie McIntosh delve into this a little bit further. I think the care.data is a really good example um, because I think we're starting to see something quite similar with, say, what DeepMind is doing. You know, 98% of our data is actually analysed, collected, uh, touched in some way by commercial organisations. And um, if, you know, if, if the public are as engaged as they are in DeepMind's involvement, not, I don't know why they're not engaged with all the hundreds of other health IT suppliers who are currently working with the NHS. So it's a really good example of all of a sudden, because it's got this Google brand, people are more attuned and interested in what's happening with their data. So even though it's not necessarily founded because it's one of hundreds of other health IT suppliers, it's maybe a good opportunity that you've got a primed audience now to say, actually, this is what we're doing with, with your data. I'm not necessarily sure I agree with the fact that people are aware of what's happening with their data. You know, the, the one-way mirror welcome trust um, uh, 
report showed that actually only 18% of the public were aware the researchers were using their data and only 16% were aware the commercial organisations were using their data. So before we start saying who's consenting and who's agreeing, just awareness is, is the first, first milestone to hit. Well, that's a really interesting point. Um, that's quite startling facts, isn't it? And I just wonder then if we come back on this awareness issue, what is it you're doing in the Far Institute or what should it, other institutes be doing to engage the public and how should we go about that? So the FAR has a number of different things, including this hashtag data saves lives, and I think this all comes about articulating what the real benefit is of sharing your data. So it's quite powerful things like when the next thalidomide happens, how long will it take for that to be picked up? How can you articulate the fact that if you liberate your healthcare data, how can that potentially save your neighbours' lives? So it's, it's using the numbers, but also those emotive uh, examples that um, we have seen have been so uh, effective in getting populations engaged, as we can see in the political sphere that's just recently happened. But then you've got this issue of people will trust it whether it's in an NHS setting versus commercial settings. Do you see that as a major problem going forward? There's a huge shortage in data scientists, as we talked about before. Um, so as a data scientist working in academia, why would you stay in a place where you're paid much less than industry, you're working towards papers, you're probably working alone maybe, whereas you could work in the Ubers, Facebook, Googles of this world, um, in the very flashy jobs wearing your trainers and suits and um, with free food and all the kudos. Um, so there's this element that there's this brain drain coming out of academia, moving into industry. So if you're looking to get the best data scientist touching your most vulnerable data, then actually we need to start to address either the incentive to move out of academia or start to be drawn and to where the, 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 the skills are really sitting, which at the moment is largely in commercial organisations as a result. So one of the incentives, I think, is you said it earlier, was data save lives. And that, I think that's a really good campaign, actually. And one of the things we're interested in the manifesto is how to fix it. But I think um, I'd be really interested in whether that's true at the moment or whether there are examples of it. I think there, there are plenty of examples. It just depends on what you consider by saving lives. So I think I'm very wary of some of these statistics about like 6,000 excess deaths because of weekend variation or what it might be. So um, I think there needs to be a, an element of caution about how many lives you, you are saving with data. But at the same time, you know, things like the Atlas of Variation or certainly the, in, in the US, use, they use data to reduce unwarranted variation in healthcare provision. Um, uh, and, and it's only by shining a light on that 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 issue was, was started to be tackled. We know that there are biases in trials, and that's part of our motivation for change. How can we stop the same thing, publication bias, outcome switching, whatever it happens to be, in this newly emerging big data field? Rob Aldridge and Maxi McIntosh again, and also Victoria Allen. Uh, I'll, I'll freely admit that I, I've only, you know, as someone that's relatively junior in research, I'm only um, now realising that it's not appropriate for me to do research without registering my analytical protocol, which I didn't do for my PhD. Um, so, uh, but, I, you know, I think that it's a cultural change. Um, and I think it's um, people like Ben Goldacre and, and your centre that, that make these issues, aware, make us aware of these issues, and journals like the BMJ that, you know, that say we're not going to publish your, at the moment, trial, but you know, in the future, your observational study, unless you've uh, unless you've registered that and you've made your data freely available, and 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 kind of <laughs> make us do that because we need a bit of a stick as well as a carrot. Sometime I think. Can I just come to Helen then on this point? So if this was a clinical trial at the BMJ, we would only say we're going to publish this if you've registered it. Mm -hmm. Yet if it's an electronic healthcare record study, which is more prone to bias. The current position of the BMJ in publishing it is? 
putting me on the spot, Carl. <laughs> I haven't read research papers for two years. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you the latest. I think. We don't. I don't think we do. No. I just I so do. just say one thing. Actually, there is a culture within electronic health record research. If you're using CPRD or Thin, which are the two kind of two of the big databases yeah. for these, where you have to do an analytical protocol to actually be able to access the data in the first place, but those are then not published. So the, so the, the companies that that, that, uh, that give these data to us have all of these and they're reviewed by a committee before you're given access to that data, but there's not a routine process at the moment for making that available. So it's, you know, us researchers that have the imperative to then publish that online. But isn't that really interesting? Within the field of clinical trials, it would be unacceptable and actually you have to register, but for actually what we consider is something that we want to make more robust and actually... Yeah. And at this point, I did check with our research editor about what the BMJ requires. And we don't actually require pre-registration for studies like this, only for clinical trials. Neither do we require authors to make their data freely available. We only ask them to say what they would be willing to make available and what not. Um, to follow on from that, I would say um, a lot of the times with cohort data or trial data, it's very difficult to get access to the data that's actually been analysed. but in terms of routinely collected electronic health records, you know, many research groups around the country have a similar copy of the same data. So it's actually a lot easier to redo these analyses and, and replicate the findings. Obviously, we can talk about the statistical biases methodologically, but there's also this new discussion around unconscious biases and those who are actually doing the analysis. So there's um, a discussion about the fact that um, we will build into technical systems the biases that we inherently have that we're not, necess not necessarily aware of. I think for me, uh, big data allows us to use different methods and approaches that we weren't using before. So a really good example is machine learning, which requires a very, very large amount of, of data. Um, algorithms are inherently pattern-seeking, and minorities don't fit patterns by definition. So for me, the big thing around this whole discussion is how do we make sure that the use of big data in healthcare doesn't exacerbate the current health inequalities that we have by marginalising marginalised groups further? Big data, whatever you want to call it, uh, <laughs> provides a really good opportunity to. So I'm interested in uh, marginalised populations, so homeless, uh, migrants, drug users, sex workers, um, and I think the data that we've got access to now allows us to address the issue that's within our existing data and uh, within our existing trials that they're mostly done on white, um, kind of wealthy um, uh, populations. And I think if when we've got data on the whole population and we're able to identify these marginalised groups, we can start to get to the idea of, of looking at what happens in the real world um, and, and, and what's the health problems of, of those populations in the real world, which we can't do unless we use these new data sets. Now, another major problem we've identified through this process is the ranking and synthesis of all the evidence created, which could inform practice. With the wealth of data available in big data datasets, could this be compounded? Lexi McIntosh and Laura Shellcross. So I have this competition with my mum, who's an epidemiologist, who's going to get a harder PhD ride. So my mum said that when she was doing her PhD, she'd have to scurry to the library and she'd have piles of books and she'd spend hours leafing through paper, paper, full stop. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, I say I, I have to spend so much of my time leafing through pages and pages of, 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 uh, of journals and publications and, and I've just got to deal with volume. It's interesting you say that. When I go back to about 94, when uh, David Sackett was there and I was a medical student at Oxford, used to have an evidence car. And on it had guideline books and it had a laptop and the laptop was pretty slow. But we could get to 
when we had a question, we could answer 80% within 90 seconds. I'm not sure if we've got if we're any more efficient. In fact, well, from when I do it now, it's less efficient because actually there's so much overwhelming information, which is what you're describing in the PhD. It's much harder to find the needle in the haystack now because the haystack's got much bigger. My worry with electronic health records is, is that with so much of these, and you're starting to see it emerge, more and more studies arriving every day, and people will tend to pick out the one that we heard it earlier, the sensationalism one, that this is the important one, that everybody will think, well, actually, this is really poor quality. Mm. We think we've got problems with clinical and translational research. What about basic science? Mm. I mean, there you've got 10 samples reported in nature as a completely changing a direction of travel. So I think that it, it goes way beyond observational and data and trials. We have this idea of what is health data, which is data which is captured within medical records and actually that's sickness data. Our health data is what's captured in our social determinants of health and that's basically mostly what Google has captured. So every symptom we've ever had we've Googled. Google knows where you're going to eat, where you've been, who you're married to, what your concerns are and that's all sitting in that social determinants of health sphere. So actually if we were very serious about prevention we got to start to also reframe what is health and non-health data and I think that's where big data can really be valuable that it starts to um, transcend those silos of, of what we see as health or sickness data. So that's a very edited version of the discussion that we had, pulling out the key points. We're putting everything on evidencelive.org slash manifesto. We know that we can't identify all of the problems and we know that many people are thinking about these and offering solutions. What we're trying to do with this is collect these into some action points and start a manifesto for change. So if you're interested in big data or anything else to do with evidence synthesis, have a look at evidencelive.org manifesto, read it, comment or sign up to one of our future workshops. Thanks for listening.